Hello and welcome to another episode of Eat This Podcast with me, Jeremy Chaffas. For this episode, I was on my own doorstep, as it were, down the hill in an amazing old building opposite the Circo Massimo. That's the remains of the big chariot racing stadium below the Palatine Hill here in Rome. I was there to meet Matteo Chirigini, director of the newest museum in Rome. It's called Garum, and it bills itself as a library and museum of cooking. The museum's based on a collection of books and kitchen equipment built up by Rossano Boscolo, a renowned pastry chef here in Italy. Matteo Gherigini is an antique bookseller. He supplied most of the books to Boscolo, who then asked him to help set up the museum. He kindly let me into the museum a few days before it opened to the public. The room we're in is a big, huge room with big timber rafters and a wooden ceiling. I mean, it's very, on the one hand, it's, it's very old, but on the other, you've got these beautiful glass cabinets. Actually, we are in a monastery. This is originally the monastery of the Olivetan Fathers. And the first floor, here are exhibited the, the kitchen tool. There are ten very modern glass cases lining three walls of the room. Each of them is packed with stuff, arranged more or less according to what they're for. And the first thing that caught my eye was a copper mould in the shape of a lobster. This series of mould is a very important series of mould. This series that you can see here came come from the English royal kitchens. Uh, has been made during the first year of the 19th century, and they are molds for Charlotte cake. The Charlotte cake is one of the most important modern pieces of, uh, of pastry. has been invented by uh, Marie Antoine Carême. Carême, at the time, was the pastry chef of the royal family. So fake dishes, uh, a cake that uh, seemed to be a lobster. <laughs> but it's not a lobster, it's a cake. <laughs> Lots of lobsters and other shapes too, like a bunch of grapes, several castles, and even what looked like a VW beetle. But no Colin caterpillar. More moulds of carved wood from the Low Countries for spiced Christmas cookies and gingerbread, and then a case of porcelain animals. Many, many ducks. They are uh, French. And uh, uh, inside uh, each one, uh, you can find the pate of the relative animal. Mm -hmm. I, I, like, I like the buffalo. I've never, I must confess, I've never heard of buffalo pate. Well, the French uh, can do it. <laughs> no, it actually is um, it's not, it's not a buffalo, it's a toro. Uh, a bull? A bull. So it's a bull pate. But it's quite rare. If you... If you compare, we have a lot of ducks, goose, and turkey, and so on, but only one, uh, only one bull. So it's not so common uh, neither on French tables. <laughs> uh, I guess beef pate, yeah. Other molds from 17th century to create uh, biscuits. Mm -hmm. They are Italian. Uh, you can see coat of arms, uh, uh, religious subjects. Uh, 
And uh... these ones here, we've got legs and teeth. They remind me of the ex voti that you see in the churches where people have maybe... I, 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 never, I never thought to this connection, but actually they seem to be ex voto, <laughs> religious ex voto. But the, these are molds for chocolate. Okay, chocolate teeth. That sounds like something dangerous for the dentist. This showcase is, is dedicated to ice cream. Ice making, uh, sorbets, uh, dated uh, 1653, mm -hmm. so it's a baroque uh, ice cream mold. All charts for butter making. Uh, this is exactly a screw press, uh, which you can press the pasta. And then uh, the bottom, uh, you create the pieces of pasta. Changing the press, you change the kind of pasta that you realize. Okay, we'd come full circle round all the packed display cases, and I could have spent hours with my nose pressed to the glass. But it was time to go upstairs, to the other part of the museum, dedicated to books about food and cooking. This is my favourite part of the collection. This is like the floor above that one, so it has a big high roof, and it's full of glass cases, but not with things in them, with printed material. Yeah, a lot of text. Here we have the collection of the antique books, starting from the first printed cookery book. This is not a facsimile, this is the actual book. All the books that you see here are original, and the, the most part of the books are in uh, first edition. This is the first edition of the Scappi, 1570, that is the Bible of the Renaissance cuisine with a lot of ingredients because the aim of the Italian Renaissance court cuisine was to uh, impress the guests, was to demonstrate the power and uh, the wealth of the one who gave uh, the banquet. So it's a very different cuisine for, 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 from the contemporary one. Well, I'm not so sure, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it depends, it depends. Uh, we can say that it's a different uh, cuisine from the domestic cuisine, uh, from the contemporary domestic cuisine. Second part is uh, the menu. Mm -hmm. You can see all the menu of the banquets uh, curated by Bartolomeo Scappi. But are these now, are these actual historical banquet. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. It says for example, lunch for a fast day? A fast day in, in March for a dinner. And you can see here the list. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten for the first service. Uh, 12, uh, 13 for the second service, uh, another 15 for the third. And this is a fast a menu? A fast menu, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you, you can't find uh, meat inside. It's a fast day. But yeah. you have to eat uh, 50 plates, 50 dishes, more or less. Yeah. And as I told you, this is the first printed cookery book. And is um, technically uh, illustrated. Yeah. Not, not allegorically illustrated. So this kind of cookbook um, is not really for domestic 
use. This is no, for the cooks of important families and households yeah. and yeah. hopes. Also, this book has been printed to demonstrate the wealth and the power of the, the owner of the uh, patron of Bartolomeo Sacchi that was uh, Pope the Fifth. Mm. So, a uh, Pope, Pius, yeah. fifth, Pius V. I mean, it's wonderful having these books here, and I'm thrilled to be able to see them. Uh, are, there, are there plans to bring these cookbooks to life? Yeah, of course. Actually, we, provide, we will provide a guided tour, the same or less that I'm doing to you now, and uh, in which uh, when we show you some of the books, uh, some of the most important, uh, maybe, uh, for example, in that book there, that is the Latinis Calco 1692, printed in 1692, there is the first printed uh, uh, tomato sauce recipe. So when we show you that book, uh, you will have the opportunity to taste the first recipe of a tomato sauce that we, that we are preparing for you at, at the time in order to understand the differences between the first uh, known tomato sauce and the one that, you, that, that, that we eat uh, every day here in Italy. <laughs> uh, you may find the first recipe with basil, that is the grandfather of pesto or the first uh, uh, panettone, 1552. Uh, this is the first uh, book dealing with uh, only with uh, cooking fishes, 1531. Mm -hmm. And uh, oh, oh, this is uh, the first book uh, that talks about uh, Malloreddus, kind of yep. pasta. And so on. Matteo is still very much the bibliophile, book after book after book, right up to modern classics like The Silver Spoon and beyond. His office is also lined with books about food that aren't on display, and he was keen to show me the museum's latest acquisition, not yet properly catalogued. They are all uh, menus. From uh, 1860, so just before the, the creation of the Italian state, uh, until uh, 1955. So this is a collection of printed menus? Yeah. Uh, restaurants uh, and, uh, and official dinner, state dinner, uh, government. Uh, so you can find here, for example, the last menu of uh, uh, Torino Capitale because the first capital of Italy was Turin. So here you can see the last menu, uh, the last dinner before. made before the, the move, we moved the, the, the capital to Firenze and then Rome, or the menu of the dinner between the king and Garibaldi in 1859. There are five or six boxes of those printed menus, and that's going to take some sorting out. And having seen the treasures, I wanted to know about Matteo's background and how he sees the purpose of the museum. I come from the scientific books uh, 
because when you create a museum, uh, when you create a place in which you tell the story, you have to be very careful and sure about the story that you tell. Uh, otherwise, it's not a museum, it's just a, a show. And uh, one of the uh, most important things that Boscolo had in mind when he started to think to the museum was to create a place in which you can bust some myth about cuisine. So we treat our cuisine as something stupid, as something different from another science. It's like uh, there is no sources. Italians think that uh, there is no sources for the cuisine. Cuisine came from my grandmother's cuisine. This idea that there is an authentic, genuine, historically accurate method. But when you look at the books and the recipes that have come from the 15th century, for 16th century, um, do you see things changing over that time in in the written material? Yeah, yeah. The, there are a lot of variants. You can uh, find uh, the same recipes uh, created using different ingredients or with uh, uh, adding some some ingredients or changing some ingredients. Here we talk about first recipes. This is the first recipe of a tomato sauce. And then we can also study or we can also tell about how it changed during the centuries. For example, the first uh, recipe of the tomato sauce, the one of Antonio Latini, written in 1692, is with uh, aceto inside, vinegar. Uh, why? Because... Antonio Latini uh, created this recipe as a sauce for meat. So vinegar gives to the meat a better finishing. Now the tomato sauce is uh, absolutely has to be made without vinegar. If you use them for pasta or for the other hundreds of way in which we use it in Italy. So it changed completely. But in the same time, they have a similar pattern. So it's made in the same way with some ingredient less vinegar and some ingredient more, for example, pepper. Makes me wonder, what would Antonio Latini, who developed his tomato sauce in the Spanish court in Naples, what would he have made of today's most popular tomato sauce, according to the internet? Marcella Hazans, which features absolutely no vinegar and a buttload of butter. That idea that the only true way of making something is the way my mother or grandmother made it is common enough, and I'm not going to argue about it. But origin myths? Those are always worth arguing about. And as Matteo said, one purpose of the museum is to bust some myths. A lot of people will tell you, for example, that Ada Boni invented that pinnacle of Roman street food, the souplie. The souplie is the uh, bowl of fried rice with uh, ragu, 
and uh, cheese uh, inside. It's a street, a, a very common street food uh, uh, all over Italy, but especially here in Rome. The first printed recipe of a suppli is uh, from is by Agnoletti, that was a Roman cook in its book of 1832. He wrote the, the first recipe of a suppli that we know. And uh, the original name of the suppli was uh, the surprise. Because at the time there were the French here in Rome, occupying Rome and uh, was a way to sell this street food to the French. So usually Italian, Italians think that the suppli is a 20th century invention. Yeah, and many of them uh, believe that Ada Boni wrote the first recipe of the suppli. No, it has uh, one century more of story. And uh, in the same way, there are a lot of fake news about Italian cuisine. But to fight the fake news, there is only a way, using the sources. This goes back to the question of whether the book represents what ordinary people are doing. I mean, if you think about some of the, f the fights in the history of cuisine, carbonara, as you know, there are four, five, six different explanations for the origin of spaghetti alla carbonara. Can you tell me from the books or from the sources what is the origin of spaghetti carbonara? Well, I'll be real unpopular. Yeah, I personally like a lot to use the, the Occam razor. So there is a problem, you have to choose the simpler solution. Well, we know that there is a very popular uh, receipt during the 18th century and 19th century in Naples that was uh, cacio e ova, so cheese and eggs, as a sauce for the pasta. There were a lot of pastari. Uh, pastari was guys who sell pasta the, along the streets in 19th century selling this kind of pasta with this uh, cacio e ova sauce. And uh, then the American arrived uh, to the coasts of Italy and uh, Pastari uh, found a lot of new clients for their pasta. And they were rich also. But how to sell more pasta to the Americans? maybe using an ingredient that American like and or then that American have because the, the military ration, the military supplies uh, food uh, for the American were full of uh, bacon. So probably this pastari added the bacon to the cacioeva and created the carbonara. So far, so mythical, it's the usual story. But there is a kicker. So another little thing that you have to consider that the uh, headquarter of the Allies army in Naples was in Via della Carbonara. So why don't we make a pasta alla carbonara? It that makes sense. I had never heard 
the story about the Via Carbonara. It was in Via Carbonara, the, the headquarters in Naples. It may be a case, maybe not, <laughs> but uh, you know, in this case for the Carbonara, we don't have any written source because the first known recipe of a Carbonara is from uh, 1952 inside a book printed in Chicago. It's not in an Italian book, but it's an, um, in an American book. The first printed Italian recipe of a carbonara is from 1955, so uh, long after the first uh, known carbonara dishes here in Italy. I'm almost persuaded, I admit it. Matteo has another pretty unpopular opinion about perhaps the most famous meal in Roman history. The museum is very close to a cave called the Lupercale. The place uh, in which uh, the she-wolf uh, feed uh, Romulus and Remus. So, but this is a myth. The same, we don't have uh, any uh, real sources about <laughs> this information. <laughs> but uh, I don't know if you, uh, if you know that Lupa, actually in Latin, uh, was... Uh, uh, the word they used for uh, prostitute. No, I didn't know that. Ah. So you so can choose, or a she-wolf, or a prostitute. Feed the Romulus and Rome, because <laughs> this could make me real unpopular here in Rome. <laughs> but if you use the Occam uh, yeah, razor, yeah. between a, a prostitute and, and a she-wolf, uh, well, Luckily, I don't really feel a need to persuade myself on that one. And Occam's razor or not, it's hard for me to imagine that there was a prostitute on hand before there was even a city. But, okay. It was terrific fun looking around Garum, which will be fully open in a few days. Huge thanks to Matteo Ghirigini for giving me a sneak preview. And the Garum website is already open for business. I'll put a link in the show notes. But right now it's still in Italian only. That's going to change, I'm sure. Those show notes, as ever, are at eatthispodcast.com. And do let me know if you're going to be in Rome and want to visit the museum. I'd love to tag along. That's all for now, though. So from me, Jeremy Cherfus, and Eat This Podcast, goodbye and thanks for listening.